All right, Force family, let's gather around the Word. If you've got your text of Zechariah chapter 10, um, we're going to get there. So last time we were together last week, we were in chapter 9, and the first eight verses of that chapter list off the judgment of God that's going to fall on the house of, of Aram, which was um, Syria then, and now it was Syria, the house of Phoenicia, the house of the Philistines, and the house of Egypt. <clears throat> The Lord God had subcontracted his divine judgment out to Alexander the Great. And so he was the one with his armies that just crushed those regions and cities and peoples, scattered them. Then the prophet uh, reports that um, the king, the Messiah who is coming, it will be he who will come with righteousness and salvation in his hands. And uh, describes him being mounted on the colt of a donkey, arriving in, at the gates of Jerusalem. After cutting off the chariot, the horse, and the bow, he will speak peace to all the nations. That king calls the prisoners back to the fortress, which is God himself. <clears throat> and, uh, and with them, then the Lord sets out to make of them a holy army out of Israel and out of Judah, then the Lord takes on Baal, you know, the Canaanite god, war god and bringer of rain. And we'll see that theme carried over into the first part of chapter 10. Now, I pointed out uh, that this is a time of need in our nation, in our state, in our communities, in our families. And uh, Julia took that a little further this last week. She sent out a request for prayer for a family that she perceived was under great pressure and warfare and she has a friend who uh, has walked away from the Lord in the middle of that, and so she asks us to pray. And I'm, I'm stirring you to keep doing that. <clears throat> so let's pray. Lord Almighty, although this family that Julia has uh, brought up is uh, anonymous to us, they're not anonymous to you. Uh, far from it, Lord. You read their mail, you read their hearts, you know their needs and their hurts. Please undertake to lift them all out of this battle and set their feet on the rock, the risen Christ. Lord, this is also a, a time when we come to pray for the, the conflict, confusion in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> you know the names of those who desperately need you and are calling out your name. And you know those who oppose you, as did Hamath and Damascus, Tyre and Egypt. While we call on you for help at this time, We know that you're at work behind the scenes. Come, Lord, protect us. Protect this nation, this state, the city that we meet in, and our families. We bow to you as King and as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this week we're in Zechariah 10. And that first verse in in chapter 10 probably should have been attached to the the last of chapter 9 because it continues the Baal theme. And when you get to chapter 2, there's a sudden wrench. There's a different direction altogether. But we go to chapter 10, verse 1, and the text says, Ask from the Lord at the time of the spring rain. So in Israel, Judah, there were two rainy seasons because the farmer would go out in October, November, pull rocks out of the field, he would plow it, and then he would sow seed and hope and pray for the early rains. And that was, those are usually heavy enough to soak the ground enough so that the, the seed that was buried in the soil would sprout 
and there'd be enough residual moisture to carry them for months into late winter, early spring. And at that point, ground is dry, your crop is half up, but there's no harvest yet. And so that's when people would cry out and ask for, for God for the late rains. And so here the text says, Ask from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. So here there's this further stripping away of the powers that were attributed to Baal, the Canaanite god of war and rain. It is the Lord God who brings the rain in due season and who causes the earth to become green and verdant, just rich. Now, uh, in verse 2, we see the theme that shifts pretty sharply here. The Lord goes after idol worshipers in Judah. You'd think after 70 years in captivity, surrounded by the drech, the, the, the heavy-duty idol worship in Babylon, that Judah would say, I'm done with that. Well, that's not so. The text describes teraphim. Okay, the teraphim were the little house gods, if you will, that Rachel stole from her father, Laban, hid it in the baggage. And they were made out of terracotta, wood, stone, bronze, and just any malleable material. You could actually make yourself your own personal house god. Woo! Okay? And they were used for divination in Judges 17 and 18. Samuel railed against those idols in use by God's people. And here we are again in Judah with teraphim. Hundreds of years later. The second line points out diviners who see lying visions. Okay? First you have idols. The first line says, oh, those, those, those little idols, those little house gods, those little teraphim, they're, they're, they are em, empowered by demonic power to be able to speak, to be able to transmit something that's understandable. Okay, now what they have to say is either about a disaster or about a freedom, neither of which have anything to do with God Almighty. <clears throat> and that second line, um, the divination uh, is, you have to recognize that this was, this was outlawed. This was forbidden. It was prohibited in Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 18, excuse me. <clears throat> Zechariah uses wording that points out the disastrous consequences of listening to a God who is not a God for wisdom, direction, and destiny. Now, mind you, divination is not just the list there in that previous snippet. It, it appears in Scripture as those who would cast arrows on the ground. You take a bundle of arrows in your hand and they throw them on the ground like jack straws. And based on the pattern and how they land and whether they stick, then you can do divination. Okay? Also, the priest would come and he would examine animal fetuses or animal livers to determine if the, if the auguries were right, if, if the powers were aligned in the heavens so that you could go forward and you could believe what that particular diviner had to say. <clears throat> and there was also the conjuring of the dead. If you recall, Saul sought a medium so he could talk to Samuel, who was dead. Ahaziah asked Beelzebub, who was the lord of the flies, <clears throat> if you will, to read the future. Ahab pursued Baal. Ahaz wanted the protection of the Assyrian deities, <clears throat> and Manasseh sacrificed his firstborn son 
for the promised direction and protection that would come from that particular idol. Jeremiah had previously raged against false prophets, diviners, interpreters of dreams, mediums, because they presented prophecy and interpretation that the Lord didn't sanction. The Lord didn't send it. The Lord didn't own it. And in fact, what the words were were usually dead opposite to what the Lord had to say. Those false ones may have wanted to speak a comforting word, but it came from the wrong source and produced an empty comfort. Verse 2 ends with, Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. Verse 3 picks up the shepherd theme. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. So all over the Old Testament, leaders, chieftains, kings, they were all... Uh, described with the shepherd motif, you know, that kind of theme. They were supposed to lead people and protect people. <clears throat> Here the Lord is angry with the leaders over Judah, who he calls male goats, which is a pretty substantial put-down. Okay? <clears throat> and he promises there's judgment upon them that's coming. Their corruption and spiritual darkness has caused the people of Judah to wander. Their tolerance for the false stuff, for false prophets, spiritual darkness, you know, has led them into corruption. And, and it's just a mess because there's diviners and idols that have basically made Judah an idolatrous nation all over again. <clears throat> now today, there are such nations in earth that have put a man up and they worship that man as God. Now those are closed countries. The gospel is not welcome there. You wonder why. <clears throat> See, here, the Lord has already promised some things. He's visited Judah. He's opened a door that cannot be closed. He has promised to punish, and he's promised to be a comfort to those people. Now, I mentioned last week that in these um, last six chapters of the book of Zechariah, that it's set in poetry. Here you may get a taste of the rhythm, anyway, as the Lord speaks of Judah set out into the future. Verses 4 to 6 begins with these words. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. And they will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them. And the riders on horses will be put to shame. And I shall strengthen the house of Judah, and I shall save the house of Joseph, and I shall bring, back, bring them back because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. I will answer them. That's an amazing paragraph. Okay, the Lord of hosts prophesies that from Judah will come the cornerstone. All right. In Judah's history, cornerstones were pictured on the corners of the altar of burnt offerings. There, you know, there were cornerstones at the base of that altar. There were cornerstones on buildings in Jerusalem. And even the wall that surrounded Jerusalem it was described as, oh, that's the cornerstone over there. However, when you go to Psalm 118, uh, this is one of the great messianic psalms. It uses the same word, pina, 
and describes the Messiah saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus applies this passage to himself. He identifies himself as the cornerstone. Peter used that illustration in his sermon to the Sanhedrin, and Paul wrote about the the cornerstone as Jesus uh, is to the building that is the church. Then Zechariah says that out of Judah will come a tent peg. Second metaphor. Um, some of us are camping people and we understand what tent pegs do. This, this is a word that could be used for a stake that's driven into a wall so that you could hang your valuables up where pests and small children and, uh, you know, the neighborhood, you know, when it could not get to them, okay? Or, or it could be the tent peg that where you, you pull out the tent rope as far as it will go, tension it tight, secure it to the tent peg, and then drive that tent peg into solid ground. It is this ladder that looks to Messiah who will be a solid support for Judah and all the other nations for they can throw their cares on him and he will hold firm. The third metaphor for Messiah out of Judah points to the battle bow. This was a particular piece of archery that only uh, uh, men who had trained from youth could could pull that bow and release it. Um, Some of them were made out of bronze and uh, they took phenomenal strength to be able to flex that bow and release. The introduction of this war implement speaks of the conquest to come and that the new God-ordained Messiah will lead and ultimately achieve in that conquest resulting in glory to God. Only Messiah could fulfill the responsibilities that these three metaphors here present. The cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow. And then verse verse 4 ends with, from them every ruler is going to rise out of Judah. This is a continuation of the theme of this, this man, Judah, and his descendants, out of them will come rulers. Every overseer. Verse 5 uses the Hebrew name for mighty men. They're called Giborim. They will be treading down the enemy. And that enemy will be on horseback. So you realize what the Lord is saying and what the natural picture is don't quite match up here. Okay? They will have huge, they will have, uh, the enemy is going to have a huge military advantage. But the Giborim... Uh, they're going to be the mighty men of Judah that will fight back with, for the Lord is with them and they will conquer it. It is the elite force of infantry under the Lord's leadership that will conquer the enemy, be able to turn that whole point of battle. And then the Lord of hosts says, he will strengthen Judah and he will save the house of Joseph. Now who descended from Joseph? What were the names of Joseph's sons? Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh. Yeah, Manasseh. Yeah. So he, you know, you remember the, the picture of, of, of uh, Joseph introducing his sons to Jacob toward the end of the book of, of Genesis. Ephraim was the most significant uh, of the tribes of the ten, of the, ten the, out, the outliers, if you will, the ones who broke away from Judah, and, and they set up their own nation called Israel. Uh, in that, 
Ephraim was the, the largest gorilla in the, in the room. And um, they were judged by God. They were swept up and they were scattered amongst the nations by the Assyrians. And here the Lord says he will bring them back. Back because he has compassion on them. Now he's not regretting having judged them. That was a fair, righteous judgment. But now he's moving to become a redeemer of that mess. When Israel is gathered back to him, he says, it will be as if they had not rejected him. You see, the Lord God of hosts is not only a redeemer. He can edit time and he can edit emotions. He is the Lord God of Israel who now promises to answer them when they call. In verse 7, the Lord of hosts says that not only will the fighting force of Judah be a mighty man, the Giborim, but also the warriors of Ephraim, they too will be Giborim. The prevailing sense of this whole verse is joy and rejoicing. The children of Ephraim are going to be filled with, with shouts and praise because their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 show the Lord of hosts saying, He will whistle for Israel like a shepherd who signals for his sheep to, whoop, get your heads up, come toward me. Okay? Uh, those of you who can, you can look over the back of your pew, uh, your, your, your chairs, and, and look at Winton, who's parked over there in the corner. And watch what happens when I whistle. You get an instant, whoa, is it dinner time? Is it dinner? Is it dinner time? What's happening? Are we ready? Are we ready to go? That, but you see, that's what happened amongst the, the sheep flocks. The, the shepherd would whistle, and the sheep would go, oh, time to go, and they would come. Okay? This is the imagery the Lord of hosts is using as he calls out for the scattered ones of Israel. He promises that they will be as numerous as they were before captivity. Okay? Because he's going to redeem them. And then in verse 9, it begins with, When I scatter them among the people, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. And right there you stop and you say, Wait a minute, Dick. You just said up above that it was the Assyrians who had scooped up the ten northern tribes and scattered them as slaves through the nations. But here, the Lord says he did it. So if he's the one who scattered Israel through a contractor called the Assyrians, then the Lord knows exactly where they are. See, nobody else knows where those ten nations went. There's speculation, of course. Okay? But, and you can do some DNA tracing, but that really doesn't cut it either. It is the Lord who knows where they are, and when he calls, when he whistles, if you will, they and their children will return. <clears throat> And he says, he, uh, he says, they will remember him from afar and return. So even if they're out there and they're at great distance away from the Lord and from worship and from anything having to do with righteousness, it will come to them that that's the call for me and they'll get up and they'll move. Then in verses 10 to 12, the Lord says, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. So the Lord's already taken Israel out of Egypt once in the Exodus. text says he's going to do it again. Okay? And the Assyrians ceased to exist 200 years before Zechariah wrote. But he, 
the Lord is setting out to redeem the ravages that were perpetrated on his people that went far beyond his ideal of, of judgment on his people. He wants to place those people out of Egypt, out of Assyria, in, in green pasture lands. That would be on the eastern slopes of the Jordan Valley in Gilead. <clears throat> Apparently it was just amazing pasture land. And then he says, oh yeah, I'm going to put them in Lebanon. So here you have green pasture land on one side and high forested mountains on the other. None of that looks like the land where these slaves from and were sent, none where they've been scattered. Verse 11 says, The Lord will pass through the seas of distress and strike the waves of the sea so that the Nile River will dry up. Assyria will be brought down and the scepter will depart from, the, from Egypt. The Lord then declares he will strengthen those returning ones and in his name they will walk. So in the natural, if the Lord were to strike the ocean, how does that dry up a river that runs from Sudan <laughs> north all the way to the Mediterranean. So in the natural you go, uh-uh, I don't, I don't understand that. But he says that's what he's going to do. And he's going to empower those who are returning. So for his family, if the, if the Lord is redeemer to Judah and Israel, and if he is the one who to whistle and call home those who once knew him and served him, how should we pray for those around us who fled the church because somehow they felt judged for their immorality or their divorce on one hand, or perhaps they fled the church because of shock at moral failure in the church or hypocrisy. It is the Lord who will bring them home in the same way. That's called revival. When those who were once alive in Christ deeply, deeply attracted to him and then they, they fall away. Then they come with, into him again a second time with a surge of new life in Christ. They repent of their sins. They offer up all they have to Jesus as Lord and receive filling of the Holy Spirit. That is the shift from being saved sometime in the past to being converted in the present. We're all, we're all headed toward that ladder. We all long for transformation within us and around us. In our families, in our cities, in our state, and our nation. So if the Lord can dry up the Nile and remove the scepter from, uh, from Egypt and bring down the Assyrians, how much more can we trust him in our circumstances? See, who among you wants to become Giborim, a mighty man? A mighty woman. We had one last night who came to our dinner table. She was invited kind of at the last minute. Played with my grandchildren. She actually washed dishes after dinner. Hallelujah. And, but when she goes home, she goes home to prepare to lead a high-level intercession group in San Francisco. Now, how many of us want to be Mighty men and women. The mighty ones follow in the Lord's footsteps. So let's do that. Lord of hosts, God of armies, 
we would stand before you a redeemed company of those who follow and trust in Christ. Lord, we do not know when revival may come. But please prompt us to pray and prompt us to engage with those who are lost and those who are befuddled of faith, who started out and have just snarled themselves into a mess. Lord, help us lift our eyes as you instructed Zechariah to see what you're doing. We long for the day of new life in Christ for multitudes. Get us ready by faith, Lord, to stand as mighty ones with you. In Jesus' name, amen.